Well, it's good to see everybody with us tonight. Um, we are currently going through a study of how we got the Bible that we have today, where it came from, can we uh, trust it as the um, completely inspired, unadulterated, um, the Word of God. Can we trust it as that? And so we've been going through this study in that. Nathan, do we have any more extra copies? or So, we're going to try to make just a few copies of that, but as he's going to make, how many do we need? Britt needs one. Who else hasn't got one? We got one, two, three. Can you make about... Um, and But basically what we've been talking about is that um, the Word of God came to us through revelation. The Bible tells us that God is invisible, that His invisible attributes are clearly seen um, throughout the created things. And so ultimately, whenever we look at creation, that we're able to see His eternal power, we're able to see His Godhead, we're able to see His divine nature, and this is what many um, theologians refer to as the general revelation of God. So ultimately there is a, a revelation of God that anybody should be able to see. And one day, everyone will be held accountable for at least that general revelation of God. But then there is special revelation of God. And the special revelation of God would be, for instance, like whenever... Uh, God spoke to Moses through the burning bush. And He told him, I want you to go and deliver my people from Egypt. And you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to do this and do this. And then ultimately, God continued to speak to Pharaoh and He began to reveal Himself and what His desires were through special revelation. And we saw that He'd done that through, um, uh, through Adam and Eve to begin with. He, he did that through Noah. He did that through Abraham. Uh, you could go on and on and on. The point being is that over the centuries, God has chosen to reveal Himself through prophets. The Bible said that God would inspire a prophet, that God would speak to that prophet. And then we studied, because the question was asked, well, how are we to know that a prophet is truly from God? Because how many of you know that there are many people that say they're prophets? <laughs> there are many people that say they're apostles. And so how are we to know that? And Deuteronomy, I think it was chapter 18, told us that the way you are going to know that a prophet is truly from me is that when what he says actually comes to pass, everything that he says comes to pass, then you will know that that prophet was indeed from me, that you should believe what he says. Another thing that we saw in that is that usually God gave specific um, uh, powers, if you will, miraculous gifts to these prophets. And so like, for instance, how was Pharaoh going to know that Moses, and how were the people of Israel going to know that God had really sent him? And then God told him, He said, well, here's what I want you to do. He said, you see that stick in your hand? I want you to throw it onto the ground. And when he threw it on the ground, what happened? It became a snake. And then Moses, he said, now reach down there and grab that, grab that snake. Now, I don't know what I'd have done at that moment, but, but whatever. God said do it, so Moses did it. And so Moses reached down, he grabs that snake, and it becomes a stick again. And so uh, there were, and then you know the rest of the story. But the point is this, no matter um, what 
no matter who said that they were from God and that God had given a word to them for the people, there was always evidence, true evidence to back up that this person is a prophet of God and you better listen to what they have to say. And so it don't matter if it was Elijah or who it was. You remember when Elijah was on Mount Carmel with all the prophets of Baal and he said, I tell you what, let's see whose God is the real God. And you know the story. And so ultimately the point being is that there was always evidence in the prophet's life to back up that this is an inspired man of God. God's Word has been given to him and you better listen to what he says. And then these people wrote it down. And so we have the first five books of the Bible are the books of Moses. Again, how do we know that we can trust that that is from God? Well, we know the life of Moses. The Jews understood the life of Moses. The Jews understood what Moses could do and the evidence that was in Moses' life. And as a result of that, they understood. The first five books of the Bible from Moses are absolutely inspired Word of God, without question. And then you could go on to any of the other books. Most of all the books had, not most of them, all of them had prophetic influence of some kind. And there was evidence in their life to back it up. Every book of the Old Testament. And again, you can relate even the historical books of the, the kings and the chronicles. You can relate them back to prophets like Ezra or, or Nehemiah or Samuel, I believe it was. And so ultimately, every book that we have, whether it was historical whether it was wisdom literature, whether it was uh, poetry, whether it was prophetic, apocalyptic as Ezekiel, no matter what kind of literature you had, the, it had prophetic influence and it was known that this indeed was the inspired Word of God. It is to be listened to, it is to be obeyed, it is to be trusted with all of your heart. And then when we move into the New Testament, y'all go with me to Hebrews chapter 1 real quick because we'll look at that tonight. But in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1, I want you to notice uh, what he says there. So Hebrews 1 verse 1. i give everybody just a minute to get there because this is a very important verse. Very important. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God what? Spoke to our fathers by what? By the prophet. So again, how did God reveal Himself? Well, He had general revelation in the creation, as Romans chapter 1 tells us. And then He had special revelation where He spoke through the prophets. All right, And He did this in many times and in many ways. It may have been through a burning bush. It may have been through angels coming to visit Abraham. It may have, there were many different ways that God chose to do it and many different times that God chose to do it. But God spoke to us. We have His inspired Word through the prophets. Now go to verse 2. But in these last days, He has spoken to us how? By His Son. So now, we have not just prophets, we have the Word of God become flesh. The Son of God that comes and gives us the Word of God. 
He lives it out for us. He shows you the glory of God and the way that you and I were supposed to live as God created us. But our sin caused us to fall from that. All right, And so He spoke to us by His Son. And it says, "...whom He appointed, the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world." So the point that I'm trying to get to in that verse is this. Jesus commissioned apostles to go forth, proclaim His message to all nations, and one of the and then he, he said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe everything that I have commanded. Right? And so what we have in the New Testament is we have Jesus, the fulfillment of all that the prophets spoke, and then He commissions the New Testament, the apostles, to go forth, and to teach them to observe all things He's commanded. So there you have the letters of the apostles that are the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so here's what we understand. The Bible is composed of this. Whenever the church in the early centuries got together and decided to figure out which books and letters were actually inspired by God or not, ultimately one of the criteria that had to be met was, does it have prophetic influence, because again, that was Old Testament, and it, that, that uh, Hebrew canon was already developed in that time, but they still wanted to look at it. Does it have prophetic influence? And then as far as the New Testament, the Gospels and the letters are concerned, does it have apostolic influence? In other words, are, are these the apostles that Jesus commissioned to go forth and to do this? And if they, it has an influence from them, their teachings, their writings, the ones that walked with Christ, then it would be included in the canon of the New Testament. If it did not have either prophetic influence or apostolic influence, it was not included. And again, how do we know that we can trust the apostles? Well, same way it was with the... And I've showed you this. I can't go back. If you'll go back on YouTube and look a few weeks back, you'll see these messages here. But ultimately... The apostles also had these same miraculous gifts, these special miraculous powers, like you don't see today anymore. And the reason being was because the Bible tells us that God allowed them to do the things that they did like that so that their ministry would be accepted, that they would know that they are truly from God, that you should believe them, that you should trust them, that you should follow them. The evidence was there to back it up. A couple examples I gave you last week and the week before was the life of the Apostle Paul. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts that um, extraordinary miracles were done by the hands of Paul so that even people that had touched his handkerchiefs that he had touched were healed. I mean, you don't see that kind of stuff anymore, right? And the same way with Peter. The Bible tells us that, that God worked through the hands of Peter, extraordinary miracles so that when the sick and the lame were cast under the shadow of Peter, just his shadow, when Peter walked by them and the shadow cast over them, guess what happened? The lame walked, the sick were healed. Why would God do that? What was the purpose? Because they were the ones, just like the prophets of old, just like Moses, they were the ones commissioned and inspired by God the Son, Jesus Christ, to go forth and to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them 
all things that Jesus has commanded. So you have the Old Testament of the prophecies that lead up to who Jesus is going to be, what He's going to do, how He's going to redeem us, and then you have the New Testament that are the, the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the teachings of the Son, Jesus Christ, so that disciples can be made followers of Him. And that's what you have throughout all of the Old, throughout all of the New. Another um, criteria that had to be met was scriptural unity. So basically, if a letter, even if it had some kind of apostolic influence, if if it, didn't, if it didn't line up in accordance with all the other Scriptures, then it wasn't included in canon, no matter who they said it came from. Because there were many writings that popped up that somebody said, well, this was a, uh, from the Apostle Paul, or this was from Peter, or this is the Gospel of Barnabas, or this is the Gospel of Peter. Or... And so there were so many writings that you can still go and access today. If you have internet, you can pull all these writings up, but why weren't they included in the Scriptures? Because the early church fathers looked at them and said, okay, this says that this one is from Peter, but the problem is this. It don't line up with all the rest of the teachings of what Peter taught in the New Testament, what Paul taught in the New Testament. This reason why I told you for a long time, they debated whether or not to put James in the Bible. The book of James almost didn't get included. And the reason being is because they thought that James and Paul were contradicting each other. On the one hand, Paul says, faith is not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is the gift of God, right? And on the other hand, James says, faith alone can't save. Faith with works can save. And so you see the difference there? And so there was a big argument there about are they disagreeing? And they come to find out they're not disagreeing. Paul is saying the same thing James is saying. The only thing James is saying is that faith alone saves, but genuine faith will have works to back it up. Or it's not true faith, because faith without works is what? Dead. And if it's dead faith, can dead faith save anybody? No. And so all James is saying is that if you say you have faith, which we are saved by alone, then there is going to be evidence of that faith in your life, right? And so James and Paul were in 100% agreement. They just had to look at it and understand what each of them were saying. And so once they saw that, they understood that yes, this document is James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, this document is Paul. They are, have scriptural unity. They have apostolic influence. And as a result of that, they belong in the canon, the Word of God. And then finally, does the church as a whole recognize the scriptural truthfulness of the letter? So then once the church fathers have come together and they have decided that this letter indeed has apostolic or prophetic influence, that it indeed... Um, it, it, it is in uh, unity with the rest of the Scriptures and the rest of the teachers, then now does the church as a whole see this as scriptural unity and scriptural truthfulness in this? And when all three of those criteria were met, then that's where this letter got included in what we have today as the Holy Bible. Does everybody understand that? 
And this is the origin of where we got our Bible from. And so that was the, that was the three main criteria that were met. Now there's more to it than that, of course, but those were the three main criteria that we met. And then the question was asked, how did God preserve it? How did God preserve it? Because at the end of the day, it's been how many years since this thing has been put together? A lot of years. And so a legitimate question has to be asked. Can we still say today that this book is without error? Can we still say today that it should be trusted? Every word of it is inspired. Can we still say that today? And that's what we studied last week. And we began to see that yes, indeed, God has promised from His Word that He is going to continue His Word throughout all eternity. That not a single word of it is going to fail. Now He does warn and say that it is possible for people to add to it or to take away from it. He does say that. But He also promises that He Himself is going to protect it so that there will always be His unadulterated Word of God without any error. And how do we get there? Well, this is where we talked about last week that God has protected so many of the original manuscripts. We have over, I think, we have thousands of, of original manuscripts of the Hebrew Old Testament, whether it is the um, uh, what we call the um, Masoretic text, and so that was the, the original Hebrew text, or whether it is the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But there are thousands of, transla- thousands of copies of those original manuscripts. And let me ask you a question. If you've got a thousand copies of a single book, shouldn't you be able to come through and take those thousand copies and figure out uh, what the original actually said? You've got a thousand to compare to. And if out of that thousand you get agreement in a thousand of them, shouldn't you be able to confidently say that this thing has been preserved throughout time, that I've got thousands to compare to, I've got thousands to still go back to the original today. You and I can go back to the original today. That's how we do it through things like the Strong's Concordance, or there are many other ways that you can do it, but the point being is that you are able to go back to the original to be able to see that it has been translated correctly. Now, as I said last week, there are many translations that, yes, they've not been translated correctly. If you've got a message Bible, throw that thing in the garbage when you get home, okay? But if you've got a good word-for-word translation, then there is, there is absolute reason to put confidence in the, the, the translation that you have. And so God has promised that He's going to do this, that His Word will never be thwarted, that basically it is going to stand forever. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 25, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. God inspires it, and God has promised in Isaiah, as I preached on Sunday morning a few weeks ago, God has promised that when He sends His Word out, what's it going to do? Is it ever going to come back to Him void or empty? It will always accomplish what He sent it out to do. God has promised that in spite of all the human error, He is going to protect His Word. That He is going to make sure that it stands forever. 
And then we saw the, the transmission of it. And again, we saw that basically we had over 10,000 copies of the, um, of the Old Testament. We got in the New Testament, we've got 5,800 copies of the Greek translation of the New Testament. That's right, 5,800, give or take some. And then we've got over 10,000 copies of the Latin translation of the New Testament. We have over 9,300 copies of the Syriac or the Slavic or the Ethiopian or the Coptic translations. And so ultimately, we have thousands upon thousands of original manuscripts to go back to to get our modern translations that we have today. We have every reason to believe that God has made sure that His Word has been preserved and transmitted throughout centuries so that it can still be trusted and dependable today. And that was just, again, we'll go back to last week's message and you'll see that. Uh, you'll see what we're talking about. Now, we did say that there were a few things that were... Um, that were uh, they they there were some discrepancies in the 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 original manuscripts. Like for instance, I told you that uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found, I think in the 40s, I believe it was in 1947 or 48. The Dead Sea Scrolls had First um, and Second Samuel in them. They also had Isaiah. They also they had a lot of books in the Dead Sea Scrolls they found, and these were BC. These were not AD. These were BC. And so, basically, in, like for instance, the story of David and Goliath, the Dead Sea Scrolls said that Goliath was six foot five inches tall. All right? Well, our Bibles and the translations that we get and many of the other majority texts that we have says that Goliath was nine feet something tall. And so, that's some of the, the discrepancies that are there, some of the, the disagreements that are in some of the translations. Another disagreement would be, like for instance, um, in the Gospels where it would say, and this was, done, this was done to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said in this. Well, there are other translations that may say, this was done to fulfill what the prophet said, instead of the prophet Isaiah. Or it may say... Um, and his name shall be called, or some of them may say, and they shall call his name. And so ultimately it still says the same thing, but there is some disagreement in exact wording. And then, for instance, it may say um, um, Jesus. Some of them may say the Christ. Some of them may say Jesus Christ. And so ultimately, sometimes when they put the name of Jesus in there, they may not say the exact same thing in the copies. But I don't care if you call him Jesus. I don't care if you call Him Christ. I don't care if you call Him Jesus Christ. Um, it does not change the doctrine of that statement whatsoever. And so that's what you get in the, in the disagreements in all the thousands of texts that we have in that. So that's, that's something that, that we uh, found out last week to consider as well. But ultimately, here's where we get to tonight. And I don't know if anybody's got their copies yet, but if you didn't, just... Um, just listen to it until you get it. And so basically we're on the page that starts out at the top. The first four words are the New Testament findings. I want to say it's the fourth or fifth page. And we're about halfway down.
We're going to start where it says summing it up. Middle ways of that page, I said. So summing it up, God intended His Word to abide forever. This is what preservation is. God intended His Word to abide forever. Therefore, His written, propositional, self-disclosure or His revelation was protected from error in its original writing and collected in 66 books of the Old and the New Testaments. And this is what we get our, our biblical canon today. And through the centuries, tens of thousands of copies and, tra- and thousands of translations have been made, this is the transmission of it, which do introduce some error. Again, I just talked about that. I told you what the errors were, and I only named just a few of them, but there are no errors that change any specific doctrine at all. Alright? Now, let's keep going. He says, because there is an abundance of existing ancient Old Testament and New Testament manuscripts, however, the exacting science of textual criticism has been able to reclaim the content of the original writings, revelation and inspiration. And it's reclaimed it to the extreme degree of 99.99% with the remaining one hundredth of one percent having no effect on its content. Now that's amazing to me. That's amazing. Because if you've got, I just named it, 10,000 of the old and over 20,000 of the new, and out of 30,000 copies, you can still come up to 99.99% of accuracy, and the only discrepancies that are there are things like Christ or Christ Jesus or things like whether Isaiah's name or just prophet is there or things like uh, like Goliath's height. And I don't care if Goliath was 6'5 or if he was 9 foot. He still fought a kid with a sling and a stone. That's all I'm saying. Alright? And so it don't change the story. It don't change the power of God whether Goliath was 5 foot. It don't change it. Still, we got a man of war that's standing on a hillside and he's got the entire Israelite army shaking in their armor and yet a boy steps up and says, I'm not going to let him profane the name of God. I'll go get him. And he, the, the king tries to put his armor on him and the boy, he said, I can't wear this armor. He takes it off and he picks up his sling and he goes down at the, at the spring and he picks up five smooth stones, and then he walks up and in the name of the Lord he slings the first one and he kills the giant. It don't change what happened to the story no matter what, whether he's six foot five or whether he's nine foot tall. So again, that's the .01% that we're dealing with in this. Another example, I think I told you this last week, but for instance, the location of the story of where the woman was caught in adultery goes. Um, Some translations would put it in John chapter 8, at the end of John 7, at the beginning of John chapter 8. Some translations of the original manuscripts would put it in, I think, Luke chapter 22 maybe. Some translations would put that story at the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, somewhere around in there. And so again, I don't care where you put it, the story don't change, right? And so at the end of the day, if the story don't change, I, I don't care where you put it, put it in the Old Testament if you want to. I mean, Jesus wasn't there then. Oh, he was, but he wasn't. So, but the fact of the matter is, it don't change any doctrine whatsoever. 
All right, so now we get to the next paragraph. The sacred book which we read, we study, we obey, we preach it, it deserves to be unreservedly called the Bible or the book without peer. Since its author is God and it bears the qualities of total truth and complete trustworthiness as also characterizes its divine source. So let me just put that in layman's terms for you. Is God trustworthy? If God is trustworthy, should His Word be trustworthy? You better believe it. And so... That's all this is saying at the end of it is that this Word of God is just as trustworthy because it comes from the trustworthy God Himself. Now tonight, this is where we pick up. Is there more to come? That's a good question. Is there more to come? Is God going to speak through more prophets? Is God going to speak through more apostles? Because there's a whole lot of apostles today, right? I mean, there's all kind of religions today that have the apostle... Uh, this I'm not going to say names because this is recorded, but the apostle so-and-so and the apostle so-and-so. And so are there going to be more apostles? Is there more to come? Well, let's look at some of the requirements of an apostle to see if you think that they're... Now, let me, let me say this. The Bible does make a difference between apostles. Now, what I mean by that, the twelve apostles were a different kind of apostle than, say... Um, Barnabas or Silas that had been sent out by the church. Because the word apostle means one who is sent. And so ultimately you have the twelve apostles of Jesus, all right, because they were sent, but they were sent specifically by Jesus Himself. You understand that? Then you have some that were indeed apostles, but not in the same tense of what we're looking for when we talk about apostolic influence of the Word of God. All right, God spoke to us through His Son, and His Son commissioned twelve apostles to go and make disciples and to teach them and train them, and they wrote letters to churches. They laid the foundation of the church, as Paul said, as a wise master builder, and no other foundation can be laid, Paul said. But look at, uh, look at some of the requirements of an apostle. So uh, first off, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 21. May have been 2 Corinthians. Yeah, go to 2 Corinthians. I'm bad about writing the wrong scripture down sometimes. But we'll find it. It ain't 921 either. Where is that at? Well, I'm looking to where they had to be a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, hang on, give me just a minute. I apologize. Like I said, I wrote the wrong one down. Let me go back to 1 Corinthians. No, I'm not thinking about Acts. No, this is going to be Corinthians. And it's probably going to be a verse 21, so just give me a minute. 
All right, give me a minute and I'll come back to that. Let's look first off at, uh, go with me to Acts, since uh, Fagan mentioned that. Acts chapter 2, verse 43. What'd you find? Well, let's see if that's it. I'm telling you, if I wasn't trying to think of it right now, it'd come right to me, but I'm on the spot and I can't, my mind has said, nope, I'm not going to tell you. No, that's not it. I'm pretty sure it was 1 Corinthians. Hang on, let me think just a minute. Uh, I'm going to have to come back to it. All right, let's go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 43. So Acts chapter 2, verse 43, look what it says. <clears throat> Start in verse 42. This is talking about the church that was saved, okay? And they devoted themselves to who? To what? To the apostles' what? To their teachings. Again, because they were the ones sent out by Christ to lay the foundation of the church. Alright? And now keep reading with me. And the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So that's what the first church did. See, we got all these projects today, and we got all these ministries that we do. And the first church simply did this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. They just listened to the Word of God being taught and how Jesus had fulfilled it and what it looks like for us to follow Him. And then it says, and they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Fellowship here meaning that they were yoked together, joined together for a common cause and a common purpose. And that was to become disciples of Jesus and to follow His teaching. And then they were devoted to the breaking of bread, which we would have here, the Lord's Supper, the, the observing, the remembrance of what Jesus had done for them. And then they were devoted to the prayers. And that's what church was. <laughs> you make it all you want today, but this was church back in, okay? And then verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through who? Through the apostles. Why? Because they were laying the foundation. They were proclaiming the Word of God and the evidence was with them so that everyone knew that they were the ones that were given this, that were given this um, commission to lay this foundation. Look with me at, um, to back that up, look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. All right. It says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And look at verse 20. Built on the foundation of who? So here again, you have Old Testament prophets that prophesied it. 
you have the apostles, New Testament, you are built on the foundation. Why? Because they're the ones that revealed God to you. They're the ones that God chose to reveal Himself to the world through these ones. And so you are built on the foundations that the apostles and the prophets are being laid. And notice Christ Jesus Himself is the cornerstone or the the, the stone in which every other part and piece of it gets its alignment from. All right, we line up on him being the cornerstone, but the apostles and prophets lay the foundation. And then it says in verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. But again, the point is this the foundation is laid through prophets and apostles. All right? Now go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Look at what it says. The signs of a what? True apostle were what? Performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and what? So what are the signs of a true apostle? There is a special miraculous gift in them, right? They're able to do things, and that's what Paul was saying. How did the Corinthians know that they could trust the Word of Paul? They saw the evidence in his life. They knew what that they knew that he was of God and that he was doing things that... And that's what Nicodemus said about Jesus in uh, John chapter 3. He said, uh, Rabbi, we know... And remember, he's a, he's a chief Pharisee. He is the teacher of Israel is what, what Jesus said. Remember, Jesus said... How can you be the teacher of Israel and not know this? And so Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. How does he know that? Because no one can do the works that you do unless God is with him. And that's the point of the prophets and the apostles here. And so look with me at um, another scripture. Give me a minute to find this one scripture that I'm looking for. I, I think it is. I thought I was in 1 Corinthians. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. 1 Corinthians 9. That's it. That's it. And notice what he says in 9 verse 1. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 1. Paul's asking the Corinthians, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And then notice how he qualifies what an apostle is. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? In other words, he had witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Where did he do this at? On the road to Damascus. He had saw Jesus resurrected, just like these other apostles had seen. That was what qualified Paul to be an apostle. And in other scriptures, he'll say, I was like one that was born out of due time. 
In other words, my birth didn't come at the same time that theirs did when they walked with Jesus. Mine came afterwards. But I saw the resurrected Jesus. And as I showed you a few weeks ago, but even though He saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, He told us in Galatians, I didn't immediately go and, and start proclaiming this thing, but instead I went and I checked with the other apostles to make sure that the message that I had received lined up with what they did, lest indeed I had run in vain. Y'all remember that from Galatians chapter 1? So again, the point being is that the apostle is somebody that has seen the resurrected Lord. In other words, they had to be sent by Jesus Christ. That's what made this kind of apostle. And so um, the, the main point that I'm trying to make in all of this is that today, in the sense of a biblical apostle, no, we don't have those anymore. Why? Because Jesus is no longer appearing to people and sending them, and we'll see why He's not as we go through the steps here in just a few minutes. But the point being again is that the apostles, as we study them in the Bible, we don't have those today. Now let me tell you the closest thing we have to an apostle today is a missionary. It's one that the church has sent out. And I can show you examples of that in the book of Acts too. That yes, the church sends people out to proclaim the gospel to the world. And then you have in that sense, people that have been sent as apostles. But not apostles of Jesus Himself, but instead apostles of apostles, if you will. Apostles of the church on the foundation that has been laid. And so that's just a, 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 a reason why I say that we don't have those things anymore. But let's read um, in our text that we have on is there more to come. How do we know that God will not amend our current Bible with a 67th inspired book? Or in other words, is the canon forever closed? Well, Scripture texts warn that no one should delete from or add to Scripture. We know that. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, Deuteronomy 12, 32, Proverbs 30, verse 6, and of course, Revelations at the very end of it, right? All right. And so realizing that additional canonical books actually came after these words of warning, we can only conclude that while no deletions whatsoever were ever permitted, in fact, authorized inspired writings were permitted to be added in order to complete the canon protected by those passages. But again, how do we know? They were either prophetic, or they were the Word of the Son of God, that God spoke to us through Him, or they were apostles. And we don't have those kind of apostles anymore. Alright? And so, again, we established that the canon indeed was closed with that last apostle who was John. John was the last one. And then, uh, let's keep reading. The most compelling text on the closed canon of Scripture to which nothing has been added for is the Scripture to which nothing has been added for 1900 years. And this is it from Revelation. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Revelations 22, verse 18 and 19. Now let's go through these next five very quickly. Several significant observations when taken together have convinced the church over the centuries that the canon of Scripture is actually closed, never to be reopened. Let's see what those are. Number one, the book of Revelation is unique to the Scripture. 
in that it describes with unparalleled detail the end time events which precede eternity future. As Genesis began Scripture by bridging the gap from eternity past into our time and space existence with the only detailed creation account. There is no other creation account. So there was a parallel silence after John delivered Revelation. This also leads to the conclusion that the New Testament canon was then closed. Let me explain. You didn't know anything about how this thing was created, about where we came from, about how we got here, until Moses and God revealed this thing through Moses in Genesis. Then you saw eternity passed into our creation. Now in Revelation, we don't see eternity past, we see eternity future into eternity. So here's one thing you have to understand. From the eternity past to the eternity future, God has spoken to us about it all. Every bit of it. He didn't leave anything out. And so we can know, again, we can, we can definitely understand that from Genesis to Revelation, God has spoken His Word and revealed Himself in everything that we need to know from eternity past all the way to eternity future. Number two, just as there was prophetic silence, prophetic silence after Malachi completed the Old Testament canon, so there was a parallel silence after John delivered Revelation. This leads to the conclusion that the New Testament canon was then closed also. So in other words, whenever the Old Testament, when God quit speaking to the Jews and there, no, there were no more prophets that anybody could look at and see that they were indeed prophets of God, just like Nicodemus looked at Jesus and said, we know you're from God. Or the Israelites looked at Moses and said, we know you're from God. Or so on and so on. Same way, when, whenever the Apostle John died and he closed out Revelation, there was silence after that. There was no more after that for some time. Same way with Malachi. All right? And then in number three, since there, have been, since there have not been, nor now are, any authorized prophets or apostles, and that's what I was telling you a minute ago, there are no authorized apostles in the churches today. Why? Because there are none that have witnessed the resurrected Lord. There are none that show any evidence that that indeed God is with them and that Jesus is with them and that they are... Now there are people today that say they've seen the resurrected Lord, right? But is there any real evidence to back up uh, like the Apostle Paul or like Peter? As I showed you in the New Testament, it said that they were given miraculous powers to prove that their ministry was indeed of God. And so there are no authorized prophets or apostles today. And then it says in either the Old Testament and the New Testament sense, there are not any potential authors of future-inspired canonical writings. God's Word, and this comes from Jude verse 3, once for all delivered to the saints is never to be added to, but is to be earnestly contended for. Now go to Jude and look at that verse real quick. Jude verse 3. This is a very important scripture that I use for the argument of a closed canon of scripture. Hebrews 1 and this. Hebrews 1 1 and this are two of the main scriptures that I, I use to argue for it. 
Jude verse 3. He says, Beloved, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to do what? To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to who? And then notice what he says next. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Here's the point. There were false teachers coming in teaching things that were contrary to the faith that had been delivered once for what? Once for all. The faith has been delivered once for all. And then we have teachers that were coming in and they were teaching works-based salvation. They were teaching circumcision. They were teaching a mix of Judaism or they were teaching a mix of, of Greek gods and Christianity. And Jude says, I was compelled to write to you to contend for the faith that has already been delivered once for all. There is not going to be a new gospel. There's not going to be a new revelation. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ Himself told us that if anybody comes preaching to you anything other than I've taught, don't believe it. Don't come out. I've already given you the Word. Trust it. Believe it. Follow it. The Apostle Paul said, if I or an angel from heaven or anybody comes and delivers to you anything other than what has already been delivered, let him be accursed. Do not follow it. Why? Because the faith has been delivered to us once for all. And we have it in the Word of God. And so that's what he means there. Now number four. Of the four exhortations not to tamper with Scripture, only the one in Revelation 22, 18 and 19 contains warnings of severe divine judgment for disobedience. Further, Revelation is the only book of the New Testament to end with this kind of admonition and was written over 20 years after any other New Testament book. Therefore, these facts strongly suggest that Revelation was the last book of the canon and that the Bible is complete to either add or delete would bring God severe displeasure. And then number five. Finally, the early church, those closest in time to the apostles, believed that Revelation concluded God's inspired writings, the Scriptures. That's a pretty important argument right there. The church fathers, for instance, Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop or the pastor, if you will, at Smyrna. This was the guy that was trained by the Apostle John. It is known that the Apostle John trained Polycarp to be a pastor at Smyrna. Polycarp is one of many of the church fathers that were the first church fathers that understood that when Revelations was written, that was it. Because John was the final apostle, the final one sent by Jesus Christ Himself to lay the foundation of the church and to prove it by the life that he lived and the works that he did. Does that make sense? Alright? And then finally, so we can conclude based on solid biblical reasoning that the canon is and will remain closed, there will be no future 67th book of the Bible.
And then I'll let you finish up on the last page of where do we stand? Where do we stand? And, um, and you can finish that because I've come to the end of my time tonight. But I'd, I would encourage you to look through that. And um, you know what? Give me one more week. Y'all got anywhere to be next week? I mean, come on. <clears throat> Give me one more week with this. Next week we'll come back and we're going to finish up where do we stand? Because I want you to know as a church where we stand. I think you already know, but I want to make it very clear where we stand on the Word of God and what it means to us and why this is everything to us. Everything. And so we're going to look at, at why that is and we're going to look at a little history of Martin Luther and what he was fighting for and how that turned out for him. And, um, and we'll see where we stand on it today. Alright, any questions? Now how many people are so confused you don't even know where you are? Anybody? Well, hopefully you're not. If you, if, hey, I believe it. Listen, if I didn't believe it, I'd go home and watch football on Sundays. I'm just telling you. I'm not going to bank my life on something. Paul, the Apostle Paul said, if, if that's our only hope, eat, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In, in other words, if, if it's not true, then let's get away from this thing and go live it up, because this is all you've got. So let's go enjoy it. All of it. Let's let our flesh, if it feels good, let's do it. If, it. if it itches, let's scratch it. I don't care what it is. You know why I don't live that way? Because I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. And I have every evidence and every reason to believe it.